Carrie Blakinger, who once served time herself, is now one of the country's best reporters covering prisons and jails. At the Houston Chronicle, she wrote stunning stories about Texas youth prisons, which have raged out of control for years. Now, at the Marshall Project, she's just published a new story that shows the effects those awful prisons have on the kids' lives and how frequently kids with horrifying experiences in those youth prisons have ended up on Texas death row. It's Monday, February 7th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. A quick word before we really get rolling. There's salty language in this episode, and we'll be talking about extreme stuff. If that is not right for you or the small person in your back seat, you might want to skip this episode or listen to it later. All right, Carrie, let's get right to it. What is the state of Texas youth prisons right now? Texas youth prisons are a fucking mess, and they have been a fucking mess for decades. Right now, uh, they've just gotten over a you know pretty significant COVID outbreak that they had. But you know they've also had the Texas National Guard was sent in because they were so understaffed because so many of the staff were out for COVID. They were already very badly staffed before the COVID outbreak. Some of these prisons were like. 40, 50, 60% staffed out before they had a bunch of people calling out for COVID. So there aren't enough guards. Yeah. And that has been a persistent problem. I remember a few years ago when I was reporting on this, that there was one guard who reported to the ombudsman who's in charge of oversight that um, actually it was more than one. I think it was two or three guards that said this, that there was no one to relieve them. So they ended up urinating on themselves during their shifts because they literally had no one to relieve oh. them so they could go to the bathroom. And, and it's only gotten worse since then. But aside from that, you know, there's just this sort of, there's been recurring, um, I don't, I mean, maybe riots is overstating it, but situations where kids are, you know, getting out and sort of running around and causing chaos, climbing on roofs, you know, being just completely out of control for, you know, hours or days. And then there's been like recurring sex abuse scandals. Um, those just seem to keep happening. And right now, the Department of Justice is investigating Texas youth prisons. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that it'll be really interesting and terrible to see what the outcome of all of that is. But this is just, it's just deja vu all over again. It's sort of, there's always someone investigating and it's always a scandal, it seems. Yeah. And in the meantime, we keep sending kids there who need different kinds of help. So in other states, what kind of help would you get in a youth prison? So I can't really say what, on a granular level, what is happening in every state. Yeah. But I can say that as a whole, the sort of concept of, of youth prisons isn't really set up well for success anywhere. I do think that Texas has been one of the most consistent examples of failure, partly because we're such a big state who, you know, is very into incarceration. So we, we've just traditionally had a lot of kids in a statewide uh, prison system. So there's five secure facilities. There used to be a lot more. We closed a lot after a series of scandals about 15 or 20 years ago. But, you know, when you only have five prisons, that means that you're taking kids and bringing them far from their homes. You know, they live in Houston. They live in Dallas. A lot of them live in major cities. And, you know, you're taking these young, predominantly children of color, putting them all together with, you know, these predominantly white staff usually in very rural areas. Yeah. And not many staff, right? Right. But even if even if it were adequately staffed, it's not really a great preparation for 
post-incarceration success because right. what you're doing behind bars looks nothing like what you're going to expect in the real world. And especially with kids, you know, there's a lot of benefits to keeping them closer to home to sort of maintain whatever tenuous family ties they might actually have. Yeah. Is there any prayer that Texas is going to make these youth prisons any better? Well, you know, I do think that the head of TJJD, the Texas Juvenile Justice Department, you know, I, I do think that she's been trying, but I mean, it's just really hard if your starting place is such inadequate staffing. And, you know, part of that's because, I mean, it's it's just not a good job. And part of it's just, you know, it's it's shitty pay. But sort of more broadly, I mean, juvenile incarceration has never really worked. If you go back to when it sort of started in the U.S., there were these reform schools in like the 1830s or so that were sort of essentially like violent work farms. Oh, God. And then they sort of <laughs> changed the name and there's these training schools. And, you know, in, in theory, there's there's some training that's occurring there. But even then, kids that came out of them reported becoming angrier and more violent while they were there. And then in the 20th century, more states started moving towards a sort of youth prison type model. Which is what we've got in Texas, right? The ones in Texas, there's one expert I talked to, um, Bill Bush. He described as having, quote, exotic torture going on. Um, and it was oh. bad enough that it led to a class action suit in the 1970s, which was mostly over the use of corporal punishment and solitary confinement. And, you know, after that, there were some changes and, you know, we started sort of shifting away from youth incarceration for a little bit. But then the war on drugs happened. And then, you know, it, it became sort of, you know, another push for more incarceration. And then there were the Texas Youth Commission scandals of the, I guess it was like the early 2000s. And when that happened, they downsized the system, but we still have, you know, hundreds of kids that are locked up even post-COVID. So it's never really been a successful system. How bad is it now? It's actually sort of hard in some ways to measure exactly how unsuccessful it is. That's one of the things that we found in the course of this reporting is we were looking at you know, people on death row who'd been through juvenile prison systems. And a lot of those are in Texas because Texas has a big juvenile prison system and a big death row. But, you know, there's really no no one sort of tracking this. It was actually really hard to identify cases of guys that were in on death row that had been in juvenile prisons. We literally had to just reach out to lawyers and be like, hey, do you remember any of your clients who had this going on? And, you know, we did some searching and it might like on Google, it might come up. If you look in court listener, it might come up, but it's not always a part of the case. So there's really no sort of big picture tracking of this, which makes it really hard to tell how many of these people on death row um, ended up going through some really bad conditions at Texas Youth Commission first. So. Right. So whether it's a pipeline to death row, nobody's looking. Right. I, I, I know that some of the commenters on this story were like, well, you know, it's not surprising that people that end up on death row were also bad as kids. Fine. Like if you, if you want to argue that that is part of it, you know, I mean, like I said, it's hard to sort of distinguish between personal responsibility and, you know, communal or state responsibility. But I was so struck by just how bad some of these conditions were. What are we talking about? How bad are they? These are conditions that would fuck up adults, let alone kids. Uh, one guy described to me that the only thing to do was to, you know, beat the shit out of each other. But I was so struck by the solitary conditions. Terrence 
for instance, was in solitary dozens of times. And a lot of times it was because he asked to be there because it felt safer than being out on the dorms because there was so much chaos and violence and, you know, gang fighting and things like that. Terrence, that's Terrence Andrus, who you wrote about. Could you talk more about him? Why is he there? Terrence Andrus is a man who's now on Texas death row, but before he ended up there, he went through the system from a really young age. When he was growing up in the greater Houston area, his his mother mostly left him and his and his siblings alone a lot of the time. So he ended up sort of parenting his siblings from a young age and he was also trying to help earn money to support the family. At one point in I think middle school, he ended up on probation for selling his mother's pills at school in an effort to try to get money to support the family. From there, he went on and ended up taking part in some uh, robberies. And then, you know, at a very young age, that ended him up in the juvenile prison system. And I think that's sort of where we can see that things went from bad to worse. But when they put him in solitary, wow. he would he described that he would have nothing. They take away all your books, your paper, your pencil, like you have nothing. They would take away his shoes and put him in a room where the window had like a covering on it. So you couldn't like see through it clearly. So it was sort of dimmed lighting and the walls were covered in semen because if you put a bunch of teenage boys in solitary with nothing to do, like you're going to end up with semen all over the walls. And he described like that there was a thin mat and just nothing else. And he would wrap his feet in toilet paper to avoid walking all over the semen on the floor. And I was just like, I think these are probably some of the worst solitary conditions that I've heard, you know, in the mainland U.S. Like, these are some of the worst solitary conditions I've ever heard. And this is when he was a kid, you know. So you have to think that 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 has some effect, that he spent a lot of time in in those conditions um, because he kept choosing those conditions over the dorm. Like, that's how bad it was. And I think that's really striking. Yeah. So what is the state of Terrence's case right now? So he's um, in front of the Supreme Court. Um, You know, he has had... This is the U.S. Supreme Court, not the Texas Supreme Court. Correct. So what's going on? Terrence Andrus ends up on death row. You know, he gets out of juvenile prison and in fairly short order ends up getting in trouble again. And then one day while high on PCP, he ends up killing two people. I think it's really hard to sort of parse how much responsibility you assign to the system and how much responsibility you assign to the person. And I think that's sort of one of the bigger issues here with his case. Have there been any other cases that stand out to you? Yeah, so we looked at um, probably a dozen uh, similar cases, but one that has stood out to me for completely different reasons is Clinton Young. Clinton Young, his case is out of Midland County, And, you know, he was in Texas Youth Commission when the juvenile prison system was called that. And, you know, he told me about how it was a sort of place where, as he put it, um, violence is a form of communication. And there was nothing to do but beat the hell out of each other. And less than nine months after he got out, he tried meth and ended up back behind bars, but on death row. And he, he he was not the shooter, but he recently got out. He got off a death row. He's the guy who got out last month, right? The one who spent nearly 20 years in prison after being convicted of, I think, a kidnapping and a double murder. And he said he didn't commit the crimes. Um, What happened with his case was that it turned out that the prosecutor in his case had been 
moonlighting for the judge, like was literally getting paid on the side to work for the judge. And I remember when I read this in the writ like a year or two ago, just being like, no, like this can't be real. (laughs) Even for Texas, this is crazy. And a court agreed. And he, they not only like overturned the conviction, but they sent him to uh, Midland County Jail to await retrial. And then he got let out on bond. So what's he up to now? So right now he is he is out and in the free world. Wow. Uh, which is pretty amazing to see because, you know, when, when you hear his life story, it seems like this kid just didn't have a chance. And it's also not clear how significant his role was or wasn't in the crime that happened. So regardless of the prosecutorial misconduct issues, it would have been a case that would be ripe for a review regardless. Yeah. And um, he's a very different person than the kid that went to death row. I've spent a you know decent amount of time interviewing him when he was in the jail and now that he's out, you know, I've been talking to him a bunch and, you know, he seems very sincerely interested in, you know, trying to find a way to be involved in some sorts of reform efforts and just trying to figure out very basic things in life. Like he did laundry for the first time the other day, wow. which was the first time he'd washed clothes, not in a, you know, stainless steel um, prison sink in two decades. How old is he? He is late 30s. I'm I'm 37 and he's about my age. I okay. forget. I think he's 38 now. Okay. Which is obviously a challenging adjustment to begin with, like in, in any cir- circumstance. But, you know, he seems like someone who's really invested in trying to put together a different life. Of course, he's out on bond. So, you know, he could end up having to go back to prison. In theory, they could retry him and put him back on death row. Although I think... That could be challenging if they wanted to, because one of the elements is that you have to show that someone would present a danger in the future. And after two decades of good behavior on death row and then good behavior on bond, I think it would be a little harder to argue that. But, you know, we'll see how that plays out. So, yeah, I don't know. That's my sort of rare, happy story, I guess. (laughs) That's happy as your stories get. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah. That was reporter Carrie Blakinger. In our show notes, we will have links to two of her stories about Texas youth prisons, one from 2019 in the Houston Chronicle and the new one for the Marshall Project. All right. It is time for some news. And producer Farrell Gibbs has got some. What do you know, Farrell? What's going on in Houston? So, Lisa, you know Jim McInvale, right? Mattress Mac? How could I not? They're all on sale right now. Gallery saves, saves you, you money. money. <laughs> That's the world's worst imitation, by the way. I thought it was great. <laughs> he may or may not be saving himself money. He just set a record for a particular amount that he just bet on next weekend's Super Bowl. Oh, how much? It was $4.3 million. He placed it on the Cincinnati Bengals. It is said to be the largest mobile sports bet that's ever been placed. Mobile? What That means he placed it on his cell phone or? I knew you were going to ask that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. As you said, mobile bets are bets that are allowed over mobile devices. What he did was he drove 100 miles to Louisiana, who just legalized mobile betting last week, and he placed it at a convenience store there. So what I think is, is that there's a hub. They're placing it on a mobile device and... They're acting as a hub. So I think they place a wager officially via a mobile device at an official sports book. So normally to do that, he would have had to fly somewhere like Vegas? Yeah. Okay. All right. Go, go to one of these states where it's legal. And so if the Bengals win the Super Bowl, 
He plans to offer a refund for any mattress or reclining living room furniture for customers. And he was quoted as saying that if he does win, customers are going to be excited. But if he loses, he's going to be in the doghouse with his wife. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's it for today. But before we go... I've got a request. For our Valentine's Day episode, we are looking for Houston love stories. Love stories that are firmly set right here in the greater Houston area. Maybe you fell in love working in a noodle house at Katie's Chinatown, or your eyes locked at the Hobby Airport baggage claim. Maybe your parents met each other while they were two-stepping at Gillies, or while they were student radicals at TSU. If you have a story like that, Or if you know of a good one, please, please call us and tell it to our voicemail. Our number is 713-489-6972. When you hear that beep, tell us your name and your story. And yeah, we will put that number in our show notes too. Talk tomorrow. Bye. It's Monday. Don't you laugh at me. (laughs) 